Creative Babble. How much of what you eat is actually pretending to be something else? We're talking about imposter foods on one of my favorite culinary podcasts. It's called Hot Takes on a Plate. Rob, tell us what your show's about. Well, first off, Javier, thank you for coming on Hot Takes on a Plate on the Believe Podcast Network. The show, well, here's the thing. It's the ultimate food fight. I debate my culinary world friends and other eating enthusiasts like yourself uh, in their areas of expertise. And I thought, you know, since your area of expertise is pretend, let's talk about pretend foods. There's a lot of pretend foods out there. And yeah, you're going to be <laughs> we got into it. How much fake food you're eating. But that's not always a bad thing, right? Some of the some of the some of the pretend foods taste pretty good, and some of them you might break a tooth on them. But we'll get to that. So check out Hot Takes on a Plate with Rob Patron wherever you get your podcasts. David Brookings is a singer songwriter. And like most musicians, he was just looking to get his big break. His style is definitely influenced by early rock and roll and the Beatles. But David Brookings knew that if he was going to get discovered, he needed to be in the right place at the right time. So he moved to Memphis, Tennessee and got a job working as a tour guide at Sun Studios. Lee Rocker, Ringo Starr, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Maroon 5, me. Sun Studios is the same place a young Elvis Presley walked in for the first time and recorded That's Alright. It's also the same studio where Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis got their start. These guys are known as the Million Dollar Quartet. When David wasn't giving tours, he was recording his own records at night. The vibe in there is what can contribute to making the sound special because it's so exciting to be in there. And those neon lights at night in the windows, say in Memphis Recording Service, you know, Sun Records. And you know you're on the same spot where Elvis did That's All Right and where Carl Perkins did Blue Suede Shoes and where Howlin' Wolf recorded and B.B. King. And it was just it was just great to be in there at night when no one else was around but you and the band and the engineer. David Brookings gave thousands of tours at Sun Studio, oftentimes to pretty big stars. I showed Tom Petty around. I met Bill Murray there. I showed George Carlin got out of a cab once and walked straight up to the register. And he said, hey, I'm George Carlin. I'm a comedian. And I said, I, I know who you are, man. You want to see the studio? It was just you never knew who was going to walk in. It was great. Little did he know that one of those encounters was going to change his life. One day, my boss gets a call from a guy and he says, we want to bring a man in for a special private tour and we want David to give him the tour. Can we do that? And my boss said, well, who, who is, yeah, but who is the guy? And they wouldn't tell us. They were very secretive. So it was a Saturday after work. We'd close at six. Earlier that day, the man who called and arranged for a private tour walked through the doors into Sun Studios. I'm bringing the special guest in tonight. And I said, oh, hey, good to see you. And um, he said, I said, who is he? Tell me who he is. And he said, I can't tell you who he is, but I think you'll recognize him. But if you do recognize him, don't say anything to him. Uh, just give him the tour. Don't ask him any questions because he's not he's not well. He's he's sick. But he didn't say don't give him a CD. 
So I know this is crazy to say, but when he came in for the tour, I didn't recognize him. It, it just wasn't on my radar at all. They also introduced him as Steve Easton, which so he came in under an alias, which threw me off. Even I'd never heard of Steve Easton. And he sat on that same piano bench that Jerry Lee Lewis played piano on. And he was really intense. You know, he was really listening to every word. David Brooking says it was just like any other tour. And when it was finished, I said, uh, I said, good luck to you. Nice to meet you, Mr. Easton. And uh, he looked me right in the eye. And I, I think he was thinking, this guy really doesn't know who I am. And it, but at the end, I figured, well, whoever this guy is, I'm, I'm giving him this this album. If he's important, you know, the CD's got my you know website on it and email and stuff. So we'll see what we'll see who this guy is. The lawyer was the last one to say goodbye to me that night. I said, "Was that okay?" And he was like, "That was great." And I said, "Can you tell me who that was now?" <laughs> and he laughed, kind of laughed, and he said, "You really don't know who that is." <laughs> and I said, "No." And he just kind of smiled at me and he said, we'll be in touch. The man David was giving a private tour to was one of the pioneers of the personal computer. The co-creator of Macintosh, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad. It was Steve Jobs, the CEO and the co-founder of Apple. During that time, Steve Jobs was battling pancreatic cancer. I have to ask, was he wearing his signature turtle, black turtleneck? <laughs> No, he wasn't. He was, um, you know, he had just had the surgery. So, you know, he was just hooked up to some, some gear that they were rolling around with him. So you find out afterwards that it's Steve Jobs. And is that the end of the story? For, I thought it was. And then I get this email maybe six weeks later. And the email just said iTunes. It looked like spam. I almost deleted it. In that email, an Apple executive asked David to give him a call. We got on the phone and he said, hey, I don't know um, what you told Steve on that tour, but he, he really liked you and wants to see if you want, are interested in working for, working for us at iTunes. And I was in the back parking lot at Sun and I said, are you serious? It may not have been the big break he was hoping for, but it's definitely changed his life. Ten years later, David Brookings still works at Apple Music, curating their rock and roll catalog. And did you ever see Steve Jobs ever again? I was in the cafeteria, the main cafeteria in Cupertino, and I saw him. He was sitting right across the cafeteria. I thought, well, I got to go talk to him because he had just he had just stepped down from Apple. And when he got up, take his tray to the trash, I, I kind of tapped him on the shoulder. He looked at me like who the hell are you? Nobody comes up and talks to me. And I said, Steve, it's David Brookings from Memphis, Sun Studio. And he said, hey, how are you? And he shook my hand and he said, are you happy here? Is everything good? And I said, I, it's great. And, and thank you so much. And he said, well, I hope you'll be real happy here. And I never saw him again. He, he passed away less than a month, I think, after that. So what was Steve Jobs doing in Memphis anyway? He was secretly getting a liver transplant in order to extend his life. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee during the time period when Steve Jobs was getting his surgery, and I had no idea that we were living in the same city. He was there for months, completely undetected. Very few people actually knew what was going on. So how did he do it? 
How is it possible for such a recognizable CEO to live in secrecy? This series is a collaboration with Michael Basil. My name is Michael Basil and I'm a privacy and security consultant. I, I help people disappear whenever they need to not be found. In the next few episodes, we're going to show you how to successfully vanish from society. You too can live completely undetected. It's not just for wealthy CEOs. For more than 20 years, Michael Basil worked on behalf of the U.S. government investigating computer crimes. He was also a consultant on the hacker show Mr. Robot. He no longer works for government. These days, Michael Basil helps people disappear. So if you don't want to be found, Michael Basil is your guy. In the last episode, we talked about the wrong way to disappear, which is faking your death. But there are real people out there who legitimately need to be off the radar. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Steve Jobs do it? How was such a high-profile individual able to live in secrecy? Remember the name Steve Jobs gave David Brookings during his son's studio tour? Steve Eason. Well, Eason is also the last name of the surgeon who performed his liver transplant at Methodist University Hospital in Memphis. Eason is also the man who purchased the home Steve Jobs stayed at before and after his procedure. The home was purchased specifically for Steve Jobs under an LLC. There was really no way to tie Steve Jobs' real name to the home. And this is a very common technique used to live anonymously. We're going to walk you through this technique in more detail in future episodes, but for now, let's talk about why anyone would want to disappear. Here's Michael Basil again. We talked about disappearing the wrong way, which is faking your death. But you've actually made a profession and a living out of helping people disappear the right way. Tell me about what you do and what's your business. We help people disappear, which sounds very dark and shady. It's not. Remember that scene in Breaking Bad when Saul Goodman arranges for Jesse to disappear? He hired a man known as the Disappearer, who takes people and gives them new lives and identities. Michael Basil is kind of like that guy. Except he's not helping criminals. He helps everyday people like you and me start new lives. And most of the time, his clients have had something terrible happen in their lives. And they're saying, OK, I've had enough. I need to start over. I know that's going to probably involve moving and it's going to involve all kinds of stuff I'm not imagining. But I need to start over and I need some help to do that. And that's where we come in. Everything Michael does is done legally. And in a way that if done right, no one that they don't want to find them can. The problem with disappearing is that it's easier to disappear before something bad happens. You could be living life normally one day, and then in a blink of an eye, your home address and phone number is posted all over Reddit and all over Twitter. This is called doxing. 
So let's talk about doxing, because this is a term that may not be familiar to everyone. What is doxing? Doxing is basically using publicly available information to publicly expose someone that they are against. Uh, I've been doxed. Uh, almost all of my clients have been doxed. It's the idea of, I don't like what Javier did, so therefore I'm going to find everything out I can about Javier and tell the world in the hopes that people use that information for bad purposes. We've seen stories like this in the past, and then by the time they get home, there's a news crew in front of their house. This is why being proactive about disappearing is always better than reactive. There's nothing I can do to make you disappear today from someone trying to find you today. But if I make you disappear today, I might be able to prevent the person who's trying to find you tomorrow. And unfortunately, you don't have to piss someone off on social media to get doxxed. Remember this guy? Hey, leave her alone. Do not touch her. Do not touch her. You may have seen this video on social media. A little girl was posting flyers around the trail in support of George Floyd, the man whose murder sparked a protest around the world. The man in the video grabs the little girl's arm and snatches the flyer from her hand. Get off of her! The man then grabs his bike and charges towards the man recording the incident. Hey! This video was retweeted 37,000 times, and Twitter quickly started doing its thing. And within no time, the man's address was posted all over the internet. The problem is, the internet got the wrong guy. Peter Weinberg was falsely accused of being a racist and harassing a little girl. The woman who posted Peter Weinberg's address eventually took down the post and apologized. But by that time, it was too late. The damage was done. Oh, and by the way, her apology only got a few retweets. The real guy who harassed that girl, Anthony Brennan III, was eventually identified and arrested. He's charged with three counts of second-degree assault. But who are these people who need to disappear? It usually boils down to four types of people. If you're not trying to commit insurance fraud, and who are these people who are trying to disappear? Almost every case we have falls into one of four categories. Category number one is the executive. It's that maybe that wealthy person, they are some type of executive for a big company. They realize there's a spotlight on them. Maybe there's protests against the company. Maybe there's some scandal going on. And all of a sudden they realize, oh my gosh, I'm so exposed. Help me make my family a bit more safe. The second type is the celebrity. The celebrities are sick of TMZ following them around. They're sick of being on a star map. They are sick of everyone knowing where they are at all times, coming to their house, causing problems. Third type of client is what we call the victim. It's typically a domestic violence victim. Uh, it could be a stalking victim. There's some type of typically extremely aggressive, abusive behavior towards that person. And that person gets the courage to say, I'm done with this. And then the fourth is the what we call the government employee. It could be as high up as the judge in, in a big case. It could be the prosecutor and the, the, the cartels are giving him or her death threats. It could be the detective testifying in a case. Let's begin with the executive. Typically, a person contacts me when there's a problem. With the executives, it might be a, a minimal threat. It might be that something's brewing at the company and someone's irate or maybe they're having their own stalker issues just because of their wealth. They finally just say, I'm sick of it. I don't want people to be able to come to my house and knock on my door 
because they were able to Google my name and find my home. We get executives constantly that say, nothing's wrong, I don't have a problem, life is great, but I see a lot of my colleagues facing all these issues and historically, based on history, my time is probably coming, so what would I have to do now to be not findable? The biggest problem with the executive clients is always family. I can convince the executive getting death threats that he or she needs to uh, do some specific things to disappear. I can probably also convince their spouse because they are both very concerned. The 13-year-old, the 16-year-old, maybe the 20-year-old child of that executive is not the easiest to convince. If everyone in the home is not playing ball, then I have a weakest of link that's going to cause me a problem. Late last year, a Santa Cruz, California tech CEO was murdered. Police say two out of the four suspects were his former employees. Tashar Attar was robbed and then kidnapped from his waterfront home. His body was later found in the Santa Cruz mountains. And just yesterday, while writing the script, another CEO was killed by his former employee. Michael says that you don't have to be a CEO or an executive to fit into this category. Some of our clients find themselves into this category when they didn't plan to be. I can give you an example, lottery winners. We have people that have a normal life one day. They live in a, you know, a typical house like you or I might live in. They have their mortgage like you or I have. And all of a sudden one day they're a multimillionaire because they won the lottery. As you can imagine, and I'm sure you've read before, when that happens, people come out of the woodwork to congratulate you and, oh, you're my long lost cousin. I've had lottery winners who have received death threats for not giving their money to strangers. That's an example of someone who one day never thought about privacy and the next day are begging to be hidden. Earlier, we talked about Steve Jobs and how he was able to hide in Memphis, Tennessee. I asked Michael how he was able to get away with it. I mean, there's only a handful of CEOs that are household names. And Steve Jobs was one of them. When he needed an emergency liver transplant, he disappeared and virtually no one knew where he was. How does a CEO manage to disappear? Now, I did not have anything to do with the Steve Jobs example, but I have had examples to where people that were well-known needed to disappear. Fortunately, most of my challenges are all about making, making them disappear through public records. The doctor who was performing the surgery on him actually purchased the home through an LLC, which is one of the techniques that you advocate for, right? Yeah, exactly. And what is some of the, what's the advantage of that? Typically, if a person's going to truly try to hide their home, it cannot be in their name, which means it either needs to be in the name of a company, such as an LLC, or in the name of a trust. The second type of client Michael Basil works with is the celebrity. I only have one celebrity friend, and her name is Ali Sweeney from Days of Our Lives and The Biggest Loser. I wanted to ask, how does it feel to live in the public eye? So you're in a kind of a unique situation because I would imagine that you've been in the public eye for most of your life, right? Yes, definitely for more than half. I mean, when did, how old were you when you started in Days of Our Lives? I was 16 when I started Days. Do celebrities have a right to privacy? Gosh, yes. I think everybody has a right to privacy. It's kind of an interesting 
predicament, yeah. right? Because you're a celebrity on one hand, you're, you are in the public, but on another hand, you do have a life and you want to be private. So it's like, how do you balance that? The balance has to be that I want the fans. I want to interact with the fans. I want them to be able to tell me what they think about the movies that I do and feel engaged to a certain extent as much as I can, really. And yet, how do you balance that with being safe? Yeah. I mean, how do you balance that? For me personally, I try to, for example, document like, oh, I went to the Hollywood Bowl or I went to a concert, but I try to post after I left. That was the mm -hmm. advice I received from some security experts was just, you can share your life and the things you do, but it's always better to say like where you just were as opposed to I'm here where now. now. Right. Yeah. And that way you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're celebrating and sharing all the cool things that you do, but you're not in a putting yourself in a position where someone unexpectedly approaches you and people know where you are. And I think everybody makes their own choices, right? A lot of celebrities, I notice, especially since social media, were really more careful about their kids. And just like CEOs, the celebrity needs a safe place to call home. But sometimes that's not an option. The bottom of the hill, there is a pink house, the, br the bright pink house. This is the house of Jennifer Lopez. We see the tabloids all the time. We see celebrities being hunted down by the paparazzi. But we also know that in LA, you could take a Hollywood tour of people's, of celebrities' homes. How do you make someone disappear who has chosen to make their life so public? It's a difficult balance because celebrities do want to be seen. Uh, they want to be famous for the most part. And there's this balance of, I want to be famous when I want to be famous, but I don't want you to bother me when I'm not wanting to be famous. Part of that is a safe home or even a safe second home to where we can have something off radar for them, something that they can go to and that the tabloids and the maps don't know about. So that's kind of step one. In the last few months, dozens of celebrities have had fans break into their property. Taylor Swift had a home invasion. Even her father had his house broken into. Eminem came face to face with an intruder who broke in through his back door at 4am. Slim Shady restrained the fan in his living room while waiting for police. Ariana Grande, Kendall Jenner, and even this UFC fighter Anthony Smith have had fans slip past security. Uh, a strange guy that I've never seen before. My house was totally dark and he just, you know, he had this kind of, almost like he was flexing at me and he was just, you know, walking towards me. And it, it was weird. It seemed like I surprised him, uh, which is really odd. And he just started yelling. And, and that's where kind of pandemonium started. My wife followed me out of the bedroom. Like she had to go down the hallway to, to get the kids. And I just, you know, I kind of just ran him over and we started fighting, but he's super strong. I just was having a really hard time controlling him. I uh, was trying to get a hold of his hands and trying to knock him out to get him to stop. And he just never did. So we're just, we're fighting and, and I'm starting to realize like, okay, like he hasn't shot me. He hasn't stabbed me yet, but he just won't stop fighting. But physical safety is just the beginning. The bigger problem that we face with celebrities is just the constant barrage of threats, uh, extortion, trying to compromise their accounts. Digital privacy is just as big of a threat. And a lot of times with my clients, especially my celebrity clients, 
It's not about privacy so much, it's about security. They need to be secure in their home, they need to feel secure in their home, and they also need to be secure in their digital life. Describe some of the digital problems that celebrities have when uh, when they get breached. You know, like what kind of information are these people looking for? We see a lot of times on the various underground forums where people will post collections of celebrities nude. Those are often stolen from their phones or their their partner's phones. Uh, someone hijacks their Instagram account. Someone hacks into their iCloud account. They steal their photos and now they're holding them for $10,000 for extortion or they're going to post them on Reddit or on and on and on. The biggest is cell phones. Practically every celebrity I've ever worked with has an iPhone, which means they also have an Apple ID connected to that iPhone, which means they probably also have an iCloud account, which is storing all of their content on their phone in the cloud. If let's say that you are the celebrity and I'm able to get into your iCloud account because you recycled your password from another website, which is something we talked about on your show previously, I now have access to your photos or your contacts. That's a really good one. If I can get access to your celebrity's contacts, now I have more people that I can victimize later. When I have access to that iCloud account and maybe all of your photos, that's when the true damage begins. I copy all of that. I find those sensitive, explicit photos. I'm going to share these with the world, which is going to embarrass you, or you're going to pay me. And typically, even if they're going to pay, the person still has the photos they're going to share them anyway. Or God, I just thought about it. When you said iCloud, I mean, they could do find my phone, right? And actually track yeah, down absolutely. their location. And this is something we have to really train people to get off of. It's so easy to use these services. If, if your phone breaks tomorrow, you can go to the Apple store, buy the new phone. And within a couple of clicks, the, I, the Apple employee says, here's your phone. It should be exactly like you had it. All your email is there. All your photos are there. And it's, it's this miraculous time of that was easy and, and technology's great. Yeah, technology is great until it, until it bites you and then you have a problem. You can't use iCloud anymore. Your Apple ID is going to be in an alias name. Your, your email address on that account is something you've never heard of before and you'll never check. And we have to get very careful so that first, they're hard to find when the criminal wants to come after them. And second, if they do find them, they're extremely hard to breach. We're not just talking about big blockbuster movie stars or celebrities. Right. There are tons of YouTubers out there who are these little micro celebrities. Oh my God, guys, this is terrible. This YouTuber that actually shot video of these fans going to his house and banging on the glass door because they were guys, excited to see him. This is ridiculous. That's Taylor could be getting killed right now. You know what's crazy is those people that just came to the door, they literally went... I'm sorry, we know David's been getting annoyed by people showing up to the door, but they still did it anyways. What, what, what's wrong with you? And he had to beg them on like social media and on his YouTube channel to, to leave him alone. Is another person? Yes. Stop coming here, please. I, I, I don't want to have to move, but you, this is terrifying. Well, those are today's celebrities. The YouTube people that have millions of followers, those are now the celebrities and their audience is probably more dangerous than any other audience because they're younger, they're more tech savvy and they have nothing to lose. My daughters watch these YouTubers all the time and I walk in on them and these YouTubers are shooting videos right outside their house. I could see the house number, I could see their right. neighbor's house number, I could see a lot of geographical clues that could give me as an amateur investigator a way to track them down. 
And it's also establishing a pattern of behavior, right? You are right. The, the people who stream constantly, they run out of material quicker, so they just basically turn the camera on and they, they document their life. That often includes their home, their kitchen, the food they eat, the address numbers on their house, the license plates on their cars. They are very open with that versus a movie star is only going to show what they want to be seen. The third type of client Michael Basil works with is probably the most vulnerable. Let's talk about the victim because this is someone who really needs to disappear because they are in danger. Describe the victim and, and what kind of what kind of problems do they come to you with? There's really no one can say, well, they deserved it. People can be mad at executives and say, well, they're rich, so tough. They can be mad at celebrities because, well, they're famous, that's their fault. It's really hard to be mad at a victim when they are uh, the victim of violent crime, domestic violence, sometimes home invasions, kidnappings, we've seen it all. They reach out and say, here's my situation. I need help with this. I need to disappear. I'm going to die. Brooke Vanderford knows exactly how this feels. So I met Brandon when I was, let's see, I was about to start my senior year of high school. He was really kind to me for about six months and uh, I didn't see the warning signs that I would see later. It started with a push, then a shove, then a punch. The violence intensified when they moved in together. The cycle went from hitting me once a month to hitting me once a week to hitting me every other day. I was only staying with him out of fear. He let me know he'd kill me if I ever tried to leave him. Started off as a couple slaps or pushes or whatever, and now it's, he's crossed the line where he's saying that if you, what was it, that if you leave, I'll try to kill you? Oh no, not that he would try, he would kill me. Did you believe him at yes. that point? Absolutely. The type of abuse he was doing was incredibly violent. It, it wasn't just slapping at that point. He was punching me, kicking me, throwing me into walls, choking me out. I, I didn't have a lot of faith that anyone could save me from the situation because the one time I tried to get help from the police at that point, it didn't help. Brooke told me that the final straw was when her sister stood up to him. Brooke's boyfriend grabbed her sister and slammed the door on her neck. I would never ever go back to him because hurting me was one thing and, and this is this is sad in its own way, but it's also this is this was my truth in the moment. It was hurting me was one thing, hurting someone I cared about was another. But leaving him wasn't simple. His name was on the lease, so she couldn't exactly kick him out. I had a short period of time to figure out what I was gonna do. One day, Brooke received a call from his therapist. She said, you know, I, I have to tell you that um, I had Brandon committed. And she said, Brandon had gotten his hands on a gun and he had a plan to kill me and himself. When it comes to helping victims disappear, Michael takes every precaution possible. 
I've had clients who have been the victim of attempted assassination that say, it's obvious if I don't do something, I'm going to be killed, I need to disappear. And that's where we have to be the most careful because we can't afford to make a mistake. If I have a extreme stalking victim and their stalker's crazy and wants to kill them, if I make a mistake and their home address is exposed, that person could die. I've covered some cases that involve stalking and occasionally I have listeners reach out to me that they're being stalked and it seems like a very helpless situation because the perpetrator is unknown. So how do you help victims who are running away from a stalker? Typically with my clients, it's someone that they do know. They know the identity. It's a person they've had a problem with for years. Maybe it's a former lover. It's someone who's come back for revenge. The number one rule is it requires a complete reboot. They have to move, they have to get a new phone, new computer, uh, new email address, new telephone number, new service, new accounts, close out old accounts, and then we start planting fake information just to make sure that we throw people off the trail if they do get close. And she knows she must disappear in a way that no matter what her tech-savvy husband does, he will never find her. And this, Michael Basil says, is where it gets very complicated. It's not easy to hide from a spouse because it's very easy for, let's say, a husband to use social engineering tricks to get access to his wife's phone because they're married and he has the right. And we get into some ugly situations to where even if she runs, she'll be found quickly because of the ability of that person to get into her records and to follow her. In her situation, that's a complete reboot. That's a uh, give me your phone, give me your laptop, give me any kind of digital device you have, give me your ID, give me everything and we're going to get you in a safe house. We're gonna get you somewhere safe for tonight that you will never be found in. And then we have to have a very difficult conversation of where do we go from here? Where are you willing to go from here? Because if you truly don't want to take the chance of this happening again, then you have to make some devastating changes. Uh, I had a client who she was shot uh, in her home. Uh, someone tried to kill her. She, did, she, she saw the guy. She did not recognize him. He came in, shot her a few times and left. That person probably assumed she was dead. She suspected that her husband had hired someone to have her killed. And she's, she's even talked with people before this happened, saying that he's going to kill me one day. He's going to have someone kill me. Um, but in that case, there wasn't evidence that her husband hired anyone to kill her. The man who shot her was never caught. Victims know that their attackers will never stop searching for them. And they're going to send traps and bait to that person via email to try to capture an IP address to see what city they're in, or to try to find a photo that can tell them a little bit about the area of the world that they are in to maybe go hunt them. And in these examples, Michael turns the table on the attacker. We, again, use those offensively to find out where the attackers are. Uh, I always want to know if if my client has a severe stalker, I want to know where he's at at all times. And I'm going to use the same tactics he's using back on him in order to find him and, and hopefully make him waste his time. The next and final type of client that you work with is the government employee. I have had clients who work in government spaces who have had death threats from cartels or what's more, more common is actually intimidation. It's people watching their kids at school and letting that person know that we're here. Uh, it's people basically following them around just to intimidate them into thinking uh, maybe it's not worth doing or prosecuting this case. In Raleigh, North Carolina, gang members out for revenge kidnapped the father of a prosecutor who tried them in court. 
The father, whose name is Frank Jensen, was zip-tied and abducted from his home by members of an Atlanta, Georgia gang. Michael Basil says that he has clients who work in government spaces who had death threats from the cartels. But these days, the bigger threats typically is the general public. And I think now, more than ever, with all the things going on in the country, we are seeing that target placed on them more than ever. Hackers released the name, address, and social security number of the officer involved in the Ferguson shooting. And you might be saying, so what if this cop gets doxxed? Some of these cops have murdered unarmed black men. Your job is not to be the judge. Your job is to make them disappear while everything gets sorted out, right, through the legal system. How do you get somebody who is living their life one day and then all, all of a sudden having to disappear? <laughs> you know, like they haven't had that mental shift. That's where the proactive versus reactive can make a huge difference. Unfortunately, in those situations, it's never proactive. I'm sure there are police officers who've done things to hide where they live, uh, but probably not enough. It's almost always reactive of, uh, I went to my shift tonight. I didn't expect anything weird to happen. Uh, I was the backup officer to this call and my partner shot a guy, but because I was there, uh, I'm now, I have people in front of my home throwing Molotov cocktails into my car. My job is just to let's let's get your family safe. Uh, that eight year old child of the police officer is absolutely innocent in this, no matter what the police officer did. So I want to help that family become safe. A lot of times that involves temporary lodging just to let things settle down a bit. And you talked about the importance of being proactive. If I were to look up the home address for a prosecutor, a U.S. attorney or a judge, how hard would that be? Are a lot of them proactive or are, do they have to learn the hard way? They almost all learn the hard way. From my experience, the only group that are being at all proactive and these are small numbers are police officers because they see the threats coming in and they see people going through this stuff. I would guess, and I'm just throwing out random numbers here, over 95% of people that are in those positions don't do anything to hide their home address. And typically they want to be found. They want to be in the white pages. They want their neighbors to know who they are and where they live until something goes bad. And now they will do anything they can to hide it. It's extremely easy to find them. It's, it's a simple internet search away. In practically every scenario where someone has reached out to me to say, I have this problem and people are at my home screaming at my children, I can find within a handful of people search websites their home address in a matter of seconds, much like I did on your show recently where I was able to pull your address as the first search I looked. How is what you do different than, let's say, the witness protection program? There are some similarities. There's also a, a lot of differences. Uh, for example, I I don't have access to uh, get someone a driver's license and an alias name, whereas the government can. I cannot get you a passport in someone else's name, well, legally, and help you travel anonymously on airplanes where witness protection can. Uh, so a lot of it's just the authorities that they have that I can't do. Also, uh, there are some advantages I have 
typically witness protection has a very specific playbook. They have rules they must follow. They have guidelines that they can't leave. Whereas I can sometimes expand the scope of my work. I can I can sometimes enter some gray areas, especially when we get into technology that really haven't caught up to witness protection to where they might not have that legal authority to do so, where I can get away with it because I'm not acting on behalf of a government. Uh, sometimes I can skirt the rules just a little bit. You don't have to be involved in some high profile case to disappear. Normal people like you and me could take steps to just remain anonymous. Sure. I, I genuinely hope that I never need all of the protection I've applied to myself. Uh, I hope it's all overkill and I hope it's all a waste of time. But if something happens and I do need it, I now feel protected. My biggest message to people who ever show any interest at all in disappearing and being a bit more off radar is to do something today. Become a bit more proactive today and take it slow. But then when something bad happens or that spotlight ends up on you, you're not faced with this reactive situation that basically can't help you when you need the help the most. Do you have any clients just drop off because they know they need to disappear, but they're just not committed? Yes, we've had that many times. It starts smooth um, and I think the threat is fresh in their mind, so they're willing to do things right. But as time goes on and nothing bad happens, they become complacent and they start thinking, well, maybe the threat's no longer there. Uh, I can start calling my family's house again from my cell phone. Uh, I can post to Instagram now because no one's looking for me. I do have clients that fall off and say, I'm not going to do this anymore, but thank you for your time. Um, fortunately, we have more clients who say, I feel safe. I am sleeping very well at night and I'm not getting any calls. I'm not getting any visitors and no one knows I'm here. And it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. But Ali Sweeney from Days of Our Lives had the best advice. The important thing about you doing this story would be to say, don't look at it like there's four kinds of people. Look at it like it should be you too perfecting, protecting your privacy. You don't have to be a wealthy CEO, a celebrity, a victim, or a government employee in order to live a more private life. You too can disappear. On the next Pretend, we're going to show you exactly how to actually do it. The question is, do you have what it takes? And who is Michael Basil? I talk to him all the time, yet I know so little about him. I'm going to do my best to try to figure him out. That's next time on Pretend. If you find this topic as fascinating as I do, you have to get yourself a copy of Michael Basil's book, Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear. You can find a link in the show notes. Also, this show would never be possible without listeners like you. I know that sounds cheesy, but you literally keep this show going. You'd be surprised how much cost goes into producing just one episode. So thank you, Carrie Ostertag, for becoming a Patreon supporter. Your t-shirt will be in the mail soon. If you want to help out the show and get some pretty sweet pretend swag, go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. Talk to you guys next time. Creative